We all want more freedom, and a lot of us work hard now in the hope we'll feel free later. What if there was another way? A way to feel happier, more free, and confident to get better results right now. Welcome to Your Freedom Unlimited, where we share practical stories and strategies to help you show up authentically, drop your fears, and take inspired action on what matters most to you. I'm your host, Jen Ramsey. As a coach with a love for metaphysics, science, spirituality, and strategies that get results, I'll help you step away from self-doubt and create a powerful new story for your life, business, or career. Join me. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. Thank you so much for joining me here today. And I am so honored to uh, welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who is the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and a physician at Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. He is board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine. Andrew is really a fascinating person and I'm so excited to uh, be introducing you to him today because he is a neuroscientist with incredible breadth of experience and a very interesting research focus. He's been asking questions for a long time about reality, truth and God since he was very young. And his research now largely focuses on how brain function is associated with various mental states, in particular religious and mystical experiences. His research includes brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states, as well as, as well as surveys of people's spiritual experiences and attitudes. He's written many books, and one that I have really enjoyed recently is How God, How God Changes the Brain. And Andrew has also used neuroimaging projects to study aging and dementia, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, and depression, and other neurological and psychiatric disorders. So I'd really like to welcome you here today, Andrew, and say thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your program. Well, I'm, I really am so delighted to have you here, Andrew, because I've, I'm fascinated by neuroscience and what it can tell us and, and how it can help us in our own development. And here on Your Freedom Unlimited, we're all about how to live a happier, more confident life and how to really step into that, that notion of freedom within ourselves. And I know over the last few years, as I've been doing my very much my layman's research in neuroscience, I'm, I'm, I'm no scientist, I'm a, I'm a woman of words rather than science. But I have to say, I found neuroscience absolutely enlightening for me. And it's really helped me understand some of the things in terms of the way that I've operated in the world and, and how people operate in the world. So the work that you're doing is, is just so valuable. So I, I guess I'd like to start at the beginning. I've, I've got lots, lots of questions for you. But I'm fascinated um, by what you're doing. This is such a cutting edge place to be in terms of neuroscience. So what led you to neuroscience as, as, as your field of, of particular interest? Well, I, you know, it's something that I have always been interested in, um, really going back to when I was a kid. And um, I, I really started with some very basic questions about how we as human beings understand reality. Um, you know, I was looking around and seeing how there were different religious beliefs, there are different political beliefs. And it seemed sort of like, well, if we're all looking at the same world, how come we don't all have the same 
ideas about it. And so I thought, well, if we're going to solve this, we have to figure this out. Um, perhaps uh, uh, we should start with the organ that seems to be looking at the world and helping us to figure out what the world is all about, the human brain. So I started to look at that and think about that uh, again, even you know, when I was very young. And uh, as time went on, though, I began to realize that to get to the answer to those questions about the nature of reality, that there's, there's more to it than just the biology. Um, and it really, it started to uh, send me down more philosophical paths, um, more religious and spiritual paths to try to understand it. I, you know, there were people who thought about the brain and how, and the mind and our consciousness and how we think about the world and how we perceive the world. So it became a much more philosophical approach as well. And um, all of this was kind of swirling around in my own mind when I entered into medical school and had the very good fortune of meeting two wonderful mentors. One of them was a mentor in imaging. And we started to do a lot of brain imaging studies looking at uh, fairly traditional stuff, looking at Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and depression and that kind of thing. Uh, and I also connected with another uh, gentleman who was, became another mentor of mine who was a psychiatrist by training who had been exploring this relationship between the brain and spiritual experiences and practices, uh, religious rituals and so forth, uh, actually dating back maybe even to the 1970s. So we started to think about what was going on in the brain more, more specifically. And then at one point the proverbial, you know, light went off in my head and I said, well, gee, if we're, if we're scanning the brain of people who are, who have Alzheimer's disease, why can't we scan the brain of somebody who's religious or spiritual? And that was what started the, uh, a lot of this research that I've been involved with over the last 25, 30 years, even hard to believe that I'm that old, but, um, uh, <laughs> Uh, hopefully I don't look it, but... Um, Certainly do not. You do not look it. I try. <laughs> you look like you must have been six when you started. That's what I would say. I, I might have been. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, but, you know, it was, uh, it's been very exciting to be able to do this kind of research. I know we'll talk about more of it throughout the program, but uh, to be able to study all these different religious and spiritual practices and what's going on in our brain and how that, that the intersection between our biology and our spiritual uh, cells, a topic, a field that sometimes is referred to as neurotheology, uh, which uh, also to me, you know, is a very exciting area of research that encompasses all of these kinds of questions. So uh, that's, it, you know, it, it, it's still a, a quest of mine, really. I mean, it still continues to be this kind of combined scientific and spiritual pursuit of trying to understand, um, you know, what to me is the big question, you know, how do we know what is real and, and how do we use that information to guide us properly through our lives and, and try to uh, interact with the world and with each other in the right way. Absolutely. And well, how wonderful that you're doing it because it is really this intersect, isn't it, of bringing science and spiritual together. And I think there's, for a long time, they've been held apart. And, um, and it's about one, not cancelling out the other, but how can they live together and how, where is this intersect? So I think your, the work that you're doing is is incredible, and it seems to me, it sounds to me like you're very much pioneering this work in this particular space. So, how well, I, I I certainly try to as much as possible. And as you mentioned, I mean, you know, to me, uh, this whole field of, of neurotheology, if that's the term, um, uh, is a two way street. You know, it's not just science looking at the spiritual; it's not just spirituality looking at science, but it is the two of them looking at each other to try to help us to understand who we are as best as possible. Yeah. And is, isn't that what we're all trying to do just to understand ourselves right. as best as we can. So fantastic that you've got that capability to, to bring all of that together. So 
but absolutely fascinating. So your book, How God Changes Your Brain, is a fascinating read and it gives a fascinating insight into your work on this neurotheology. Um, so I guess my first question is, is, how does God change the brain? Or more precisely, as you put in the book, how does thinking about God change the brain? Broad question, we'll get into some, some detail later, but just that broad um, premise that you start with in the book. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that I have learned over the years of studying all these different spiritual practices is that um, when, when you consider religion and spiritual pursuits and the belief in God, for example, um, it affects us on so many different levels. I mean, for some people, thinking about God is an emotional process, you know, the feeling of the love of God or the awe of God, for example. Uh, for other people, it's much more cognitive, you know, trying to understand how God causes the universe or, uh, you know, what uh, maybe moral questions about the nature of free will and how does free will you know, work with God and the picture and that kind of thing. Uh, others, it's, it, it's experiential, you know, that sometimes there's, there's actually this feeling that a person has, the feeling of being in God's presence or hearing God's voice or something like that. So, you know, what, what the data has basically shown is, is that there isn't just one part of our brain that is the God part or the, the spiritual part of our brain, but it's many different parts. In fact, again, you know, given what I was just talking about, um, it's really our entire brain that can potentially become involved in experiencing the religious and spiritual part of ourselves. And of course, uh, as you mentioned in my intro, um, since I'm in integrative medicine, we recognize also the even you know, greater connectedness of the brain and the body, so the mind-body connection. And therefore, um, if there's a part of us that is the religious or spiritual part of ourselves, it is the, it is the whole of us. You know, it is all of us. And, uh, you know, when we do our brain scan studies, as we can talk about, um, we do start to get much more granular. We get to get into much more details about what's going on and what areas of the brain specifically are involved. But, uh, but on a very broad perspective, it seems that there's just the richness and diversity of of, of what we think about in the context of spiritual beliefs, uh, God beliefs, um, it, it, it makes sense that it would just be pretty much all aspects of who we are. Wow. So it's this all encompassing. And I think what you're talking about there too, is that it, that's that approach. It's allowing for the different, the, the, the different ways that we all are. I'm not like you. You're not like me. We get in a room of 30 or 40 people who all have different approaches to perhaps this question of how God, uh, how, how, who God is for us. So, but what you're saying, I think there as well. So that's great that it's that sort of, that multiplicity of approaches. It's that um, pluralistic, I guess, approach to approaching God. But I think the other thing I think I've heard, you know, I've heard you say as well is that um, this is using the whole brain and, and that's quite a healthy thing. Is that what you're also saying? That the fact that we're engaging the whole brain in this, in, in thinking about God? Well, yeah, I, yes. I mean, you're, you're bringing up a lot of really important points here, um, which is great. The, um, you know, when, uh, first of all, uh, there really is a multiplicity. I mean, when we have done surveys, um, in fact, in, a, in, a, in another book that we wrote called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, uh, that's based on a survey of about 2,000 different people who report their spiritual experiences. And while we can get at certain core elements, the, um, the specifics of each experience is, is extremely unique. Um, so uh, I often like to say that if there's, you know, 8 billion people in the world, there's basically 8 billion religions in the world. And everybody does have a slightly different way of looking at things, feeling about things, thinking about things. 
Uh, so it isn't, again, a surprise that each of us comes away with a slightly different perspective, all the way from the deeply religious to the profound atheist. Um, and so uh, there's just an, an immense continuum of these experiences. Now, um, as you were also alluding to, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting in this context uh, from a more uh, psychological health perspective or spiritual health perspective is that it's uh, because it involves so many different parts of our brain, um, that also has a benefit for us as, as, how, as people in terms of how our brain works. Um, the best way to work with your brain and utilize your brain to make it function as best as possible is to use all of the different ways in which it works. And, uh, you know, it's great to do crossword puzzles, for example, but um, if you do a lot of crossword puzzles, you get good at doing crossword puzzles. So the more you do lots of different things, the better off your brain works. And so religious and spiritual beliefs and practices really can be quite valuable in terms of our overall health and well-being because they engage these different parts of our brain. They engage the emotional, the cognitive, the experiential parts. And, uh, and of course, you know, if you really challenge yourself and challenge your beliefs, then uh, you know, that, that helps your brain to grow and it helps your brain to continue to develop. So there's a lot of different ways in which um, these kinds of approaches can actually be beneficial for people. Absolutely. Wow, that's just fascinating. So it's this, this whole brain approach, if you like, to, that actually improves our, our mental and spiritual and physical, physical well-being. And, you know, um, I've, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've, I've experienced anxiety myself and some of our listeners have and some have experienced depression. So it's, it's and I want to get into that a little bit later, but um, it's, it's wonderful to understand that there can be some, some real benefits to using the whole brain to, to assist right. in, those, in those areas. Um, but I guess at the heart of what I read when I, when I was looking at reading how God changes your brain is that at the heart of this, I guess, approach or contemplate connection with God is this notion of contemplative practice or meditation. You looked at, you know, you've, you've done brain imaging with Franciscan nuns, you've, you've looked at atheists, you've looked, I understand in one of your more recent books, you've looked at rabbis. Um, and I guess the, I guess the, I'm just curious to, to dig into that a bit more now in terms of meditation and spiritual practice and how that what the, the benefits of that because and i guess to give you some context um this podcast is relatively young but i every interview that i've done um with people has been really about exploring how they've stepped into feeling happier and more confident and more free within themselves to do what they would like to do and a very common golden thread that has run through each of those interviews has been the power of meditation so I'd love to hear your neuroscientist's view on, I guess, what, what is that meditation? What's that contemplative practice doing for us? And how is it helping us? Right. So, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really important question as well and, and something that has a variety of ways of answering it from the, you know, especially from a neuroscientific perspective. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, let's take a big step back and say there are thousands of different kinds of practices of meditation. And the data to date uh, shows that for the most part, virtually all of them can be beneficial. Um, so, you know, whether one does mindfulness or uh, Kirtan Kriya meditation or transcendental meditation or breathing meditation or yoga, um, all of them have been shown to be effective for people in terms of helping them to reduce stress and anxiety. Uh, often they can help to improve concentration and memory. Um, now, you know, the, so part of the question is, well, how exactly do they go about doing this? Mm. And, um, and uh, one thing that, that, one analogy that I like to use a lot is to think about the brain a little bit as a muscle. 
And so, you know, if you're going to train your muscles, um, doing something like lifting weights can be very good for the muscles. You're sort of putting a little bit of stress on the, on the muscle. And as you do it, the muscles become physically bigger and then they become functionally stronger. You can lift more and more stuff. Well, meditation to me is a lot like lifting weights for the brain. Um, what it seems to do actually is, act, is make the brain literally bigger. There are brain research studies that have shown that people who are long-term meditators literally have thicker brains, thicker frontal lobes in particular that are help us with concentration compared to people who are non-meditators. And some of our studies, which are more functionally oriented, show that even at rest, by doing meditation over a period of time, it changes the way the brain operates and it allows certain parts of the brain, the ones that you're using in meditation, to be more functional. And so now when you start to look at specific types of practices, one of the most common aspects of many meditation practices is concentration. It might be concentrating on your breath, it might be concentrating on an object such as you know a visual object, a candle or a light or uh, a, a mantra, you know, particular um, phrases or sounds, um, but you're concentrating. And so the more you concentrate, the more the concentration areas of our brain, which in the, for the most part are your frontal lobes, which are located behind the forehead, um, these turn on when you're doing the meditation, but the more you do it, the, the easier your brain is. So now when you start to apply that to concentrating at work, concentrating on how to solve a relationship problem, uh, trying to, you know, figure out where you're driving to or something like that, you know, so, so your frontal lobes start to become more active in general and they become more efficient and they allow us to be able to concentrate better, to have memory, uh, which is more effective. And, um, and then the other piece to this, which is that the frontal lobes not only help with concentration and attention, but they also connect to our emotional centers of our brain, the limbic system. And so that helps us to regulate what our emotional responses are. And in that regard, uh, again, that has a very big beneficial effect for people because if you're anxious, for example, um, the limbic system turns on and how, you know, what do you do with that? And so it's your frontal lobes that say, wait a minute, you know, let's not get overly emotional here. Let's settle it back down. And so there's always this kind of balance going on. And if the frontal lobes can actually be a little bit more heavily weighted in terms of their activity, then that can settle the emotional responses down. It can regulate them more effectively and it can help people to prevent the stressors in life from sort of running away with themselves and, um, and feeling less anxious. So uh, again, on a, there's so many research studies that have been done, both in terms of the imaging studies uh, also clinical trials, which have shown how these meditation practices really help people. Uh, and that's, that's really where we're at at the moment, which is that these practices do seem to be very beneficial for lots of people. Uh, we still have a lot of questions to answer, though. You know, we don't know which practices are the best practices, um, which ones might be best in certain circumstances. And, uh, and that's something that is unfortunately really, really missing um, from the research right now. You know, if, um, if you come in with a, um, you know, an ear infection or something like that, I, I know what kind of antibiotic to give you because I know what kinds of infections they are. And so I, I connect that all in, you know, very easily and I can know exactly what to do for you. But if you came to me and said, I really want to learn how to meditate, what should I you, you know, what should I do? Which kind of meditation should I do? We, we don't have a great answer, a way to answer that. You know, it, we don't have a way of saying, oh, you know, you're a, uh, an 80 year old who's worried about getting Alzheimer's, you should do, you know, this type of meditation, you're a 
20-year-old college student who wants to, you know, who's worried about their, you know, their, their boyfriend-girlfriend relationships or something, you know, like, we don't know how to help people with the specific issues that they're dealing with, but, but we're learning. And as more and more research is done, hopefully we'll, we'll figure it out a little bit more effectively. At, at the moment, maybe the short answer is, is that the practices that work best are the ones that a person enjoys doing. You know, the more you, in, the more you engage it, the more you can do it. That's really the best one for you. And, uh, and ultimately, if you're doing one that works for you, then it's probably going to have that same kind of benefit. Uh, but it, there may be a different one that works best for somebody else. Well, you've just answered one of the questions that I had, which was which was which meditation is practice is best. And um, like you, I've because I in my coaching practice and and in my work, I um, and people ask me that exact question because I teach meditation and they ask, well, which meditation is the best? I'm, I'm really always talking about the benefits of it. And so one of my questions had been, what's the best? And um, from the non-neuroscience perspective, I, I offer different options, and then I, then I often say, but what I say is, what resonates most with you is what's going to work most most for you. And uh, so you've just answered that question. We don't know yet, but it, it's that what resonates most is going to work the best. So it's great to hear. I mean, and the 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 the, the fact that the research is so compelling now around the benefits of of uh, meditation, it's 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 really. It's very heartening, and I was working with a corporate group a couple of weeks ago, and I was presenting the benefits of meditation to them. And and you know, when you look at things like improvements in productivity, improvements in problem-solving skills, improvements in creativity, I said to the CEO uh, who I was working with, I said, "Wouldn't you want all of your staff meditating if if these are the benefits?" And he said, "Absolutely." So it's very much we're on this we're we're on this journey for it to become a much I think much more of a mainstream. Um, been activity, that's for sure. Um, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the curtain career um, research that you did. You did that longitudinal study. What was it that you found in there that was most compelling? Was, what, was that one of the, is that some of your more earlier research now, or is there something more recent that you'd prefer to share with me, or is that still a good piece of research to look at? Oh, that's a great piece of research. I mean, it, it, it's something that we did do uh, several years ago. Um, it is something that certainly uh, was uh, part of what was exciting about it was that it was very groundbreaking in the sense that it was the first study that was ever done that um, that looked at the longitudinal effects of meditation. And so, you know, really said, let's start with people who had never really meditated before and let's, you know, find out uh, what happens to their brain over time. So uh, with the, you know, Kirtan Kriya, for, for the people who are not familiar with it, I mean, it's a, it's a mantra-based practice. There are several specific uh, sounds that you're supposed to repeat over and over again. And the way it's designed is, is that um, people do the practice for 12 minutes a day. And uh, again, there, there's actually four specific sounds. It's sa, ta, na, and ma. And you touch your fingers uh, to your hands as you do it. So sa, ta, na, ma. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's you know, very simple, very easy to teach, obviously, which is part of why I liked it as a clinician. You know, I'm always looking for something that's simple to do. Uh, and, um, and part of what we, we scanned their brains initially, we taught them how to do the practice, and then we brought them back about eight weeks later to see how their brain had been changed by the practice. And what we found was, was that, uh, that the practice actually was extremely effective at um, changing how their brain worked, um, in particular they had increased frontal lobe activity and, um, and they had uh, decreased uh, 
changes in their um, in what's called the parietal lobe, which is located in the back of their brain. And this is an area of the brain that's very involved in our sensory processing and how our sense of self is, is established through uh, our sensory input. So uh, what we were finding was, was that some of the experiences that people had in terms of uh, kind of losing their self a little bit in the practice um, and also the heightened level of concentration was a very important kind of change that we were able to see and document. And of course, you know, if people can do this practice for 12 minutes a day for eight weeks and we can see this kind of a change, then you can imagine what's going on in somebody, as you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the studies we've done on, on uh, Buddhist meditators and nuns and so forth, we've been doing these practices for 20, 30 years, um, how, you know, on a daily basis uh, for hours a day, uh, how that will dramatically change what their brain is able to do. So uh, clearly, you know, it's something where um, this was, to me, a really important study. Uh, one of, I mentioned a few moments ago that one of the studies looked at long-term meditators versus non-meditators and saw that their, their frontal lobes were thicker than those people who were not. And we realized that there was a little bit of a chicken and the egg issue there, which was that whether their brain had gotten thicker, as we were talking about the muscle analogy, you know, by doing the practice for many, many years, or could they have been built that way? And that's part of why meditation became something that was so easy for them to do and that they enjoyed so much. So we wanted to take it that next step. And uh, rather than spend, you know, wait 15 years to scan people before and after, we said we could do functional imaging in a very short period of time to see if we can affect those same kinds of changes. And that's exactly what we did. And, and the changes were in the same areas that became thicker uh, over time uh, in people's brains who have been doing those kinds of practices. So, you know, going back to your point, I mean, these practices wind up having very important physiological effects. And then in the Kirtan Kriya study, part of what we showed also was that people had improvements in their memory, usually about 15% or so. Um, and then also had uh, lower rates of uh, depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms. So uh, as we were talking about at the very beginning, you know, it really kind of cuts across a variety of different brain processes. And that's why these techniques seem to be so effective for people because it's not just one little thing that they're working on, but it seems to have this this global effect. In fact, uh, you know, another uh, aspect of that muscle analogy that I always like to talk about is that if you want to become a really good tennis player, for example, um, you've got to train your muscles to play tennis. You practice tennis. You don't go out and shoot basketballs, for example. Um, but on the other hand, there are, so, so there's specific training that one can do, but there are general practices, lifting weights as we, you know, as the analogy goes, or running, for example, that you might do no matter what you're training to become, whether you're trying to become a good tennis player, a good basketball player, lifting weights and running could be very important for all athletic uh, aspect, you know, all athletic uh, activities. So the brain is the same kind of way. You know, if you want to get really good at crossword puzzles, as I mentioned earlier, you do a lot of crossword puzzles, but that doesn't necessarily spill over into, you know, remembering where you put your keys uh, for your car. Uh, on the other hand, doing a practice like meditation has this more global effect and might actually make you better doing crossword puzzles, but it may also make it easier for you to remember where you put your car keys and also make it easier for you to do your job at work and, and all the different aspects of your life. So that's, that's how we start to look at this in terms of trying to understand what meditation practices ultimately do for us, both physiologically uh, as well as clinically. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's a fascinating area. And as you say, it's this global benefit. And I think what I also heard you say there earlier was that you know it increases this frontal lobe activity but also helps us calm down the amygdala so it really helps with that emotional regulation piece that i think 
particularly in these times, people are struggling with it. There's fears and anxieties that are coming up for people, but it can also be the normal flow of work. You know, uh, how do I manage my emotions at work? How do I regulate? And this sounds like it's a great practice. Well, I know, I shouldn't say it sounds, I know it's a great practice. I've been meditating for, for a few years now and really understand the benefits of it. And I can see in my own self how it's helped me globally, as, you, as you're saying, and but helps with that emotional regulation, which is so important as with these times we're going through. Yeah. Well, and, and, and one, you know, one other piece, you know, as a physician, I always have to think about, you know, what are the downsides of things too? And there are times when meditation actually doesn't work that well for people. Um, and, and people should, should make note of that. You know, if they, if somebody starts a practice uh, and it makes them feel more anxious or they, they don't feel right, or they feel strange or they don't get it. Um, they have trouble with it. You know, they fall asleep immediately once they try, you know, the, uh, if it's not working for the person, um, then then it's important to think about uh, selecting a different one. And, um, uh, you know, again, it doesn't mean that no meditation will work for them. It just may mean that that particular one is not the right one. Um, there's there's even fewer examples of, you know, really bad things happening. Uh, but, you, you know, where like people can actually become, uh, you know, uh, uh, make seizures worse or um, or even become psychotic. Uh, but that is extremely rare. And usually those are very intense practices. So, you know, somebody who is going about doing some mindfulness at work or trying, you know, doing the Kirtan Kriya practice, that's not going to happen with that kind of thing. But if somebody is, is planning on, you know, doing a, 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 a six month retreat where they do nothing but meditate intensely all day, every day, then, you know, that it's where at least you want to be a little aware of, are there any particular issues that might be a problem for that particular person? And, and certainly if some, somebody has some history uh, of any issues, then it is something that should be paid attention to and, and people should be a little bit more careful uh, as, in terms of doing it. I look, I hear what you're saying there and, and I do agree. I remember many years ago, it probably would have been about um, 12 years ago, I was sort of, I was on the self-development journey and trying different things. And I did the 10 day Vipassana silent meditation retreat, which was for me at that time, quite challenging. I think I'd approach it very differently now, but it was probably too much too soon. And, um, and, and I got through it, I did it, but it was an interesting experience. It took me till day seven till I really was able to sort of get in the flow. So seven days is a long time of meditation when you're not really in the flow. So I do understand what you're saying. And I think it is, it's like, it's horses for courses. It's what's going to work for you. And, and that's what I say when I'm working with people, I say, choose something that feels right. If it doesn't feel right, move on to something else. There's all, there's many different paths to in this process. It's not just that there's one singular path um, that, that we need to pursue. And I guess Absolutely. that probably brings me then to my next question. And I guess in, in um, how God changes your brain, you talked about the idea of compassion, the fact that, these practices, it doesn't matter sort of what spiritual tradition you're from. Um, there's a real, one of the major benefits that arises from meditation is this idea of compassion. You also mentioned the danger of religious activities that focus on fear. Now, um, I'm, I guess I'd just like to understand what's going on here. And obviously my focus is on how do we, where's, what's the role of compassion? I think we could do with more of that in our society right now. Could, could you just talk to Absolutely. that a little bit? Well, yeah, I, you know, the, uh, there's a couple of things with that. Um, so first of all, um, our brain works better when we are more focused on positive emotional feelings. So uh, feelings of love, compassion, forgiveness, 
Um, these are feelings that help to reduce the negative emotional responses, help to reduce the stress response, uh, increase the amount of neurotransmitters in our brain that are sort of the happy neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and make us feel good. So when we focus on things that are more positive, uh, we, we actually become more positive. Um, the neural connections that support that positivity become stronger in the brain. And because we are less stressed, we don't have those, those negative uh, effects of the, those highly stressful, anxiety, anxious kind of states. Uh, on the other hand, if you are focused on you know, the world being bad or, or other people being evil and you're focused on hatred and anger and so forth, then those one are the connections that become fundamentally in, in, embroiled in your brain. But those negative emotions actually have a detrimental effect on the brain. In fact, data has shown that when you have a lot of negative emotions, um, the brain itself does not function as well. Uh, you know, we all know, we were talking about the, before, that balance between the limbic system. You mentioned the amygdala, which is a very important part of that, uh, and the frontal lobe. So, you know, the balance, you'd like, you'd like it to be nicely balanced. Maybe the frontal lobes are a little bit higher. But if you're anxious and nervous and stressed all the time, then the, the limbic areas and the amygdala start firing more and more. Our frontal lobe starts to go down. And so we don't, you know, that's when we speak without thinking because our thinking areas have been shut down. Um, we, we don't remember things as well. And ultimately, it is very detrimental for the body because this, you know, uh, our stress response is there for an adaptive reason to deal with acute stressors, which is important and keeps us alive. But when it becomes chronic, if you're always constantly involved with like a work-related stress or relationship stress or financial stress or whatever, then um, you know the brain and the body are not set to deal with that. And it increases your blood pressure and your heart rate. It increases, it reduces actually your immune system function. Um, so it does make you far more prone to having a, a variety of problems, ultimately heart disease and cancer and infections and things like that. Uh, as well as, again, the more you focus on the negative, the more you feel anxious and, and hateful, um, then those become the ways in which your brain works. And so it can lead to anxiety disorders and, and fear and depression and so forth that um, really can take over a person. But again, the, the, the beauty of the brain is that it can change. Um, and if you are consciously uh, aware of that ability to change and, and work purposely to change it, um, you know, if you focus on practices like meditation and particularly those that foster love and compassion, then those can become the neural connections that, that replace those negative ones and, um, and the brain can settle itself back down, the frontal lobes can come back on, and you can live a much more compassionate, loving kind of uh, life that will be, you know, useful both for your own mental health and well-being as well as your physical health and well-being. Mm. So really our practice, our meditation practices need to be focusing on these, these elements of love, joy, compassion, and, and gratitude as well. So, and that reminds, as you're speaking there, you're talking about the neurotransmitters linking, neurotransmitters linking together. I think years ago, the old saying was, was it those that fire together, wire together. Um, right. That's, is that, that's pretty much what that, that is, isn't it? So, yeah. So we need to really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and that is part of how meditation works as well, which is again, you know, the, Part of meditation is that repetitive focus on something. So if the repetitive focus on something is compassion, then the neural connections that support that, as you said, you know, the neurons that fire together, wire together, 
Um, and while there's a lot more biology behind that statement, but that it is kind of how it works. And so, um, you know, that, that is what will ultimately start to happen for a person, but it can take time. Um, it takes purposeful effort, conscious effort to do that, but it can be done. We have what's called neuroplasticity, the ability of our neurons to rewire themselves and reconnect with each other. And, and the other, the flip side of the, um, uh, of that saying of neurons that fire together, wire together is the use it or lose it. And um, that can be good or bad for us. You know, obviously if we start to lose our sense of compassion or lose our memory, then our brain doesn't function as well. But if, but we can also lose our sense of anger, hatred, and anxiety. And so that can actually change the way we, we approach the world and change the way we approach ourselves. So exciting. It's such a powerful thing that, that we are able to access now. And, and thanks to your work, it's you've been able to move meditation out of the realm of the spiritual into perhaps to the areas of our community where perhaps you might be require the science to allow them to try something different so you're really opening up so many doors for people so it's it's just it's just fantastic um i guess with all of this and and thinking about how we're sort of using our starting to use our brain differently and i i certainly in my work i, I very much talk about this notion of upgrading our mind to a 21st century uh, way of thinking and way of being. And obviously meditation is a very clear path to that. I'm going to ask a big question here, but do you think that we are on an evolutionary, or we are, are we on the cusp of an evolutionary change to the way we use our brain and to the way our society might operate through, mm. through using these practices? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, uh, my, my, mentor, my late colleague, Jean DeQuilly, um, who I mentioned a little earlier, uh, it was an anthropologist by training as well. And, um, you know, evolution is something that takes a long time. And so it's a little bit tricky to, to know exactly where our evolutionary changes will occur, when they will occur, and how they will occur. Um, what is interesting about the brain in particular and interesting about humanity is that because we have the ability to communicate and to talk with each other, uh, we're not starting from, you know, from, from square one each time. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to figure out meditation yourself for the very first time. I can teach that to you. Uh, and in that regard, you know, when you start to think about the possibility of affecting many thousands, you know, millions, maybe billions of people's lives, by trying to um, trying to work together to develop a greater sense of compassion and um, and positive emotion in people, um, you know, you you arguably could uh, have a kind of evolutionary shift in humanity. You know, whether or not that is a true biological, you know, genetic level shift is a different kind of question, but a really interesting one as well. You know, uh, that you know, at some point, can we actually change, you know, from the biology of who we are and how our brains work to kind of be a different kind of, of species even and, and kind of, you know, tap into consciousness and, and various other ways of understanding the world that, um, that we don't currently have. That would be fascinating. And, and maybe, it, you know, maybe that can happen. But, but short of that, there's still some incredible paradigm kind of shifts that can occur that um, that in many ways can lead humanity, uh, you know, at, uh, to to some kind of new enlightenment, uh, if you will, you know, a, a different way of all of humanity of thinking about themselves and thinking about the world around them and how we interact with people. And you know, this global pandemic is 
uh, I think brought a lot of that idea to the fore. Uh, people are thinking about, you know, uh, how they are and how they operate and what's important and, and the various issues that are going on all over the world. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, you know, as you mentioned, this is a very uh, challenging time for all of humanity on a lot of different levels. And, um, and so, you know, it's possible that, that we can get to a new way of thinking about things. And that is something, you know, that certainly has happened in humanity over time. I mean, we, up until uh, whatever, you know, 300 years ago, we didn't have democracies and now we have democracies. And so, you know, who knows what will be the next steps as we, as we go through the human development, if you will. Um, I sometimes actually think about it a little bit more rather than, as a, rather than an evolutionary perspective uh, per se, I sometimes think about humanity as being uh, kind of like a singular person and that, you know, 5,000 years ago, it was kind of like humanity and uh, the human mind, so to speak, was born if you will, and, and, and we've kind of developed. And I think we're kind of in that adolescent phase right now where, you know, it's very tumultuous, um, a lot of very conflicting issues and problems, uh, a lot of struggles, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, um, you know, uh, but also the, the emergence of some of the things that we can ultimately become um, and the ability to be compassionate and try to make the world a better place and make ourselves better. And so, you know, hopefully we will grow into that more adult uh, kind of person who's able to balance things properly and and manage themselves as well as the world more effectively so we'll we'll have to see i i love that concept and what a fascinating idea but i i hear what you're saying and it's this you see right we, we're evolving and as we're in those teenage years full of angst and lots of yeah. difficulty but as you say we could be on this we like i feel we are on this path to moving to that into early adulthood where we can um, deal with things in a little different way. So that's, I love that concept that you're, that you're so. sharing. <laughs> you know, I really, well, I do too, because I, and that was sort of, I guess, my next area of questions was to really look at how meditation or how all of this can play into how using our brain can play into belief change and, um, and this notion of becoming more of a, of a community that, that is compassionate towards one another. I mean, we're in a time right now, as you said, with the pandemic, there's a lot of social unrest. There's a lot of uh, identity politics that are, you know, that are that are really emerging, and and um, a lot of angst out there. And yeah. um, you know, it's, what those things are doing is they're sort of fracturing us more as a community rather than bringing us together. And you know, then at that individual level, um, you know, people are are really suffering. You know, it's not good enough. The feeling of not or not enough, lack or not worthy worthy enough. I guess my question is, from your study in this whole area, what have you learnt that could help us loosen our hold on these beliefs that don't serve us, you know, at that societal level, but also at this individual level? I know that's a big question. Sure. Well, you know, I, um, to a large extent, you know, if, uh, if I may be idealistic for a moment, I mean, this is part of what I hope neurotheology helps us with. And we, we address it in How God Changes Your Brain, as well as in How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, these two books that we published. Um, one of the things comes back to what we've been already talking about, the idea of trying to foster compassion, love, uh, forgiveness within people. And that is something that can be purposely, consciously done often through practices like meditation or other types of spiritual practices. Um, but I, I think the other, the other piece to that uh, is, is trying to, uh, is what we learn from, from studying it. And, you know, one of the people often ask me, well, what's, what's kind of your 
your big take-home points from, from what you've been doing, this research over the last 25 years. And, and one of the things that I, I, I say is, is that uh, when you do look at how each person's brain responds to the world, when you look at how each person through with their genetics and their upbringing and their biology and the people they've met and so forth, you know, when, when we look out onto the world, we have access to like this tiny little fraction. I, I, I tried to calculate it as best that I could, and I got to about 10 to the minus 67%. Um, and yet somehow, you know, we think we understand the world. Um, and so, and we think that we're right uh, and everyone else is wrong. So, so part of, yeah, so, so part of what I, you know, to me, uh, we, we also wrote an earlier book called Why We Believe What We Believe. And, and part of what we talk about is this idea of, you know, uh, if, if we're all looking at this tiny percentage of the world and our brains are just doing the best job they can at getting to some answer for us, um, it's no surprise that we come to very different kinds of perspectives. And maybe this research teaches us to be more open and understanding that it may make sense that, uh, that you know, you're Christian and I'm Buddhist and somebody else is, you know, Muslim or something like that. And me, you know, or uh, I apologize, I don't know the political parties in Australia, but, you know, in the United States, um, that somebody looks at the, at the world from a Republican versus a Democrat or, or liberal versus conservative. Um, and so it's not a surprise that people come to these different perspectives. Part of what this research teaches us is, you know, what are the parts of our brain that are involved in that? And, 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 and an important conclusion is that it, there isn't really a right or wrong way to do it. You know, however we, we decide to weight different, our emotions, our thoughts, you know, different aspects of how we think about the world, um, it doesn't inherently mean that they're right or wrong or better or worse than somebody else's. They're just the ones that have worked the best for, for each one of us. And so to some degree, we're all in that same boat. And, um, and maybe with this kind of realization, bringing in more of the science, but also kind of maintaining that spiritual idea uh, about compassion and love, um, that, that maybe we can find a, a pathway forward that helps us to try to, you know, move beyond a lot of those, in, those kind of uh, the smaller disagreements that we have, um, or even the bigger disagreements, and try to, to find some of the common uh, roots of who we are and how we think about the world and, um, and see if we can use that information in some way to move forward. And, uh, and in fact, you know, I often talk about neurotheology, you know, what, what, what it can do. And uh, it really ranges from the very esoteric to the very practical. And, and we've kind of covered a lot of that to a certain extent. You know, the, on a very practical level, it might be useful in a workplace to improve productivity or to reduce depression for somebody. But it also can get at some of these bigger questions about, you know, who we are as human beings, how we think about our world, how we understand our world, where we develop our morals from, uh, where we develop our sense of uh, right and wrong, meaning and purpose in the world. Um, so there, there's so many ways in which we can take this research to try to understand those things and then hopefully apply that so that other people can kind of find the ways in which they can uh, move in their own paths through the world and hopefully recognize where our similarities are more so than where our differences are. That's it. Because I think ultimately that's where we need to go. And I, I feel like there's a lot of confusion at the moment for people with, with perhaps traditional, um, you know, processes or condition or, or societal mores breaking down. People are trying to understand, well, what is the new normal? You know, we've talked about the pandemic. What is the new normal? But what is it, you know, at that societal level, as you, as you said? So I guess a take from that, that there, 
this process of understanding our brain, but also is it the meditation that allows us to hold our own perspective, but allows us to observe and be compassionate about another's? Is that is that's really to me my one of the I guess one of the takeouts that I've taken from meditation. But is is right. that cor- a correct assumption? And what can we do? I guess I guess I'm very interested in this notion of how do we loosen this absolute focus on I'm right and, and you're wrong. Right. Well, you know. I... <laughs> One of the uh, statements that my colleagues and I have made over the years is that um, a lot of these rituals and practices are morally neutral technologies. So, you know, what that means is is that, yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. Meditation can be a wonderful way of promoting compassion and love, but like everything, it can also be used the wrong way. You know, if, if you're, if in the meditation process, especially if it's part of a spiritual tradition, the focus becomes the tradition and everyone outside of that tradition is viewed as being, you know, wrong, evil, uh, you know, whatever, um, then, then the more one focuses the meditation on that negativity, the more it actually can be a problem and it can be, you know, result in, in a much more negative, more destructive kind of way. Uh, most meditation practices, as you mentioned, though, uh, really are about uh, love and compassion. And uh, I, I mentioned this one point a little earlier, but uh, it, to sort of reemphasize this, um, one of the common things that we have seen in many of the different meditation practices we've studied is a decrease of activity in the parietal lobe, and that's located in the back of the brain. Um, this is the area that helps us to sort of create our sense of self and to establish how our self relates to other things, other people in the world. So as, the, as activity in this area decreases, what happens is, is that there's this progressive perspective of oneness or connectedness with things. Now, interestingly, um, depending on where one is on that continuum, different things can happen. So you can feel more connected to just a group, which can actually make things worse when you're talking about other groups, um, or it can connect you to all of humanity. It can connect you to all of the world, all of the universe, you know, God, whatever it is. Um, and uh, when we talk about a unitary continuum, uh, arguably speaking, at the, at the far end of this continuum, so to speak, um, is an absolute unitary state where everything becomes one. And if you are in that perspective, then, um, then all of these different ideas about the world uh, really kind of you know, blend together. And there, there isn't a conservative versus liberal or a, you know, Jewish versus Muslim, it's just all part of this oneness. And it is a different way of thinking about things. Um, and some people refer to that as enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, it, you know, that would be to me, you know, the kinds of directions that one might ultimately hope that one can recognize the uniqueness of each person, but also the incredible um, connection of each person. And, and the, in that sense, kind of the oneness of each person as being part of humanity. And, you know, if one is religious, one might say, well, we're all, you know, created in God's image. So we are, you know, there, there's a similarity of all of us, uh, even though you may not believe what I believe. Um, and it could be a more philosophical perspective. Um, so there, there are different ways of looking at that. But, but yes, I mean, I think ultimately the hope would be to find ways of using practices like meditation and prayer, other types of spiritual practices that don't just link people to a tradition, but allow people to kind of break down that self-other dichotomy 
and, and feel that greater sense of connectedness of all things and, and ultimately all people. You went exactly to where I wanted to go with my next question, which was this whole notion of yeah, stepping away from the self and into the, into more the notion of the, of the, of the oneness. And, um, and I, I, my personal belief is that that's, that's where it's at. Um, but not everyone does, you know, does, does uh, subscribe to that, but it's this notion of how are we going, I guess the question is how are we going to operate as a society and how are we going, how can we most um, easily do that? And if, as you talk about this continuum, if we move towards that continuum of oneness, it, it allows greater acceptance of others and it allows you to be you, me to be me and others to be others, but we can all be more harmonious. And I think that's possibly what we need a bit more of in our world right now, rather than, rather than less, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, and and it, you, you, read, you sort of reminded me, uh, and I don't remember which book we referred to this in, but, you know, many people are familiar with um, Plato's, the, you know, the cave uh, analogy and, and uh, you know, the, the idea that, um, uh, that, you know, that people are sort of like looking at this screen and they see the world in this one way. And until you turn them around and see that the world is different, um, they, they resist and they, you know, they feel like that's the only way to be. And, and that, you know, this is, again, where kind of the neuroscience teaches us a little something. This is where neurotheology comes in again, where um, when people have, a, you know, we, we develop a belief system that works for each one of us. And so when we are confronted with somebody who believes something different, our brain has kind of a choice. It, it can either say, uh, I'm, I'm right and they're wrong, or they're right and I'm wrong. And of course, um, it's a lot easier for our brain to say, no, 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 uh, I'm right. You know, because if I feel like I'm wrong, then I have bigger problems to deal with. You know, I, I don't understand the world and the brain is not going to be happy with that. So um, that's always a challenge when we are confronted with another person's, you know, uh, an alternative belief system uh, that uh, it is much more likely for our brain to try to reject that. And, uh, and oftentimes it takes a lot to change a paradigm. And that's true in everything. It's true in religion. It's true in politics. It's true in science. You know, people always talk about science as being so objective and um, but science is done by scientists and scientists are every bit as human as everybody else. And um, uh, you know, they are reluctant to uh, accept new theories and, um, and change the way they think about the world. And uh, you know, I'm always reminded of Albert Einstein who never liked quantum mechanics and it just, it didn't make sense to him and he did everything he could to fight it and prove it didn't work. It didn't work. And the more he tried to prove it didn't work, the more, solidified quantum mechanics became, but yet he still never really, you know, it just didn't make sense to him for some reason. And he was the, one of the most brilliant minds in history. Um, you know, just because you're brilliant doesn't mean that you can't hold beliefs that uh, affect the way you understand the world and think about the world and, and change the way you, you, uh, uh, you know, you interact with other people who disagree with you. That's exactly right. And I think what you're talking about there is that, I mean, it, what you're talking about there is that movement from, the two options, the binary option of right and wrong to a third place, which is uh, we could all be right, depending on how we're viewing the world. And I think that's, uh, you know, we need, it's about stepping, and that's that survival mind that you're talking about. It's the I'm right, you're wrong. That's, I'm going to keep myself safe when I feel that I'm right and you're wrong. And it's about really stepping out of that survival mind into quite a different, you know, as I said, when I talk about this, the 21st century upgrade, it's, it's about into this new way of thinking and doing where I can loosen my beliefs enough to be, op be open to new ideas um, right. and, and see how I could take them on. If they're beneficial to my life, then I can take them on. And 
that's a lot of work you know in my in my work that's exactly what i what i work with people to do is you know is that old belief set serving you what is it delivered to you um what could you know what could opening up to a new belief do just trying that on for size i'm not saying you have to own it for the rest of your life but just try that on for size for a while right. i had a question then um also about the and you've, you've sort of mentioned to uh the, the the book around enlightenment and i guess this notion i guess my question is can meditation help us reach enlightenment and this accessing of different parts of our brain so um in in your book you mentioned jill bolt taylor who had a stroke that damaged her brain and allowed her to access quite a transcendent state after she'd had that stroke and she and she says she can now move from her scientific uh to her transcendent part of her brain she knows that she's moving from one part of the brain to the other and I know there are forms of meditation that allow this. Um, and I, so I guess the question is, is this possible for all of us? Is there a doorway that we could all open into this more transcendent state? You know, it, it certainly seems that way. Um, you know, exactly how that works for each person is, is, is that, you know, is trying to find that right combination for the lock. Um, the uh, you know the data one of the data that we talk about in this um, this survey that we did of a couple thousand people and and how enlightenment changes your brain to me the take home message is just that you know that that basically um, enlightenment uh, can happen to anyone and can happen to everyone um, you know there there didn't seem to be any particular exceptions to the rule I mean whether it was young old male female uh, religious not religious. Um, you know, uh, people who were striving for enlightenment for 30 years versus, you know, the one guy who was driving his truck down the street and just suddenly had the experience. So it just seems like um, there's so many different ways, so many different um, uh, pathways for people to engage this kind of experience, to experience enlightenment in some kind of form or another that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I think it is something that is a part of every person's brain. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, the, the, one of the interesting questions, which is what the, the Jill Bolte Taylor example kind of brings up, is um, when you have an, an enlightenment experience, it can last, you know, literally seconds um, for some people, and yet completely changes their whole perspective on life. So the question is, is this, is the brain literally like rewired? You know, like you just like shook the whole brain up, and now you know there's new connections that have formed. Um, or is it, uh, you know, to, to, I like the analogy of like the video game where there's like, you know, a new character that you can unlock that it's in the game, it's built into the game, but you just don't have access to it until, you know, you hit the right score or something like that. So um, we don't know, you know, that's the question that we don't know. We don't know if it's all just in our brain uh, or that our brain is ultimately capable of it, but that we have to get the brain into the right kind of a state. Uh, either way, we do have, you know, that's part of it is, is trying to find a way to get the brain into the right state um, to have those kinds of experiences. And, and that is, you know, one of the pieces of data that we also talk a lot about in the How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain is how meditation practices can help with that. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the frontal lobes being turned on during meditation, but when people have an enlightenment experience, part of what we think happens is that the frontal lobe shuts down. Um, that's part of this feeling of surrender, part of the kind of letting go that people talk about. And, and what we actually argued was, was that it's not just, you know, being high or being low, but it's the shift that, that occurs, which is where the enlightenment experience comes from. And the analogy that I often use is like, if you're in an airplane, 
Um, if you're sitting on the ground, you don't feel it. If you're flying up above, you don't really feel like you're moving. When do you feel that you're moving is when you're taking off or when you're landing, when the plane is changing. And so it's the change that is relevant. And by doing meditation, what you're doing is you're getting your frontal lobe to be more active so that when it finally does drop, you can have a much greater experience. And, and that's because we realize that you know, meditation is not, you know, it doesn't equal enlightenment, but it facilitates enlightenment. And, and so we think that that's part of how that may happen. And, and actually one other study that we did uh, of a spiritual retreat program showed that the brain became more sensitive to dopamine effects. And so again, it's not that the retreat or the practices like meditation or prayer were the experience, but they facilitated the experience and they predisposed the person to having some very intense kind of experience that would be you know, a, a feeling of enlightenment or, or, or mystical, uh, spiritual experience kind of thing. Mm. Oh, yes. And what you're talking about there is it opens the door and it facilitates that. What's also fascinating is that one of my um, meditation teachers, she's, she exactly talks about this notion of that shift and actually within the process that we do, it's this shift and then so it's surrender and shifting. So it's, it's exactly yeah. what you said from a neuroscience perspective that's happening. So it's turning down that frontal lobe, lobe and allowing the, the parietal lobe to, to become active. So how fascinating. I know in your book, and we're, we're coming close on time, but I've got a few questions. If you could bear with me, I wouldn't mind asking a couple okay. more questions. Um, just in terms of, in, in, in the book, you mentioned the research around ayahuasca and um, you know, psilocybin in terms of giving people who have perhaps experienced long-term depression or PTSD some significant breakthroughs. Could you speak to that at all briefly? Well, I'm, there's a growing uh, a number of studies that have looked at the effect of various psychedelics um, uh, as a treatment, um, and uh, it, it looks very promising. Um, you know, obviously, we'll have to see how that goes. But um, you know, with just one or two doses of some of these substances like psilocybin, people have had substantial reductions in depression, for example. Um, so you know, we'll certainly have to stay tuned to that. Uh, you know, from a neurotheology perspective. We also know that those uh, substances result in uh, taking those substances result in spiritual-like experiences. Um, and from our survey, we actually found that the people who had spiritual experiences with a, a psychedelic were every bit as real and as spiritual as those experiences that were more, you know, quote unquote, natural. So, uh, you know, from the in terms of the neurotheology puzzle, if you will. Um, you know, it's a big piece of that puzzle because we know where these substances go. Uh, oftentimes they affect the serotonin system of the brain. But by learning about that, we can understand the physiology of these spiritual uh, experiences and how they affect us and also understand how that may have an impact in terms of our psychological health and well-being as well. Mm, very exciting. And I think it's great that that yeah. research has started up again. I know for a period of time it was completely shut down, but I think the last 10 years that research has had, a, had some resurgence. So, and I think the, the benefit of that is, is for those people who are sort of long-term, have, have experienced depression for a long, in the long term, it, it's a very hard road. And yeah. uh, it's hard work for them. So it's wonderful that there can be some some there's some work in that area that could open up some new opportunities for them. Definitely. And I guess, I guess now in terms of, I just wanted to like to get a little bit, we've, we've been pretty practical all the way through this, this conversation, but um, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about was time to meditate. When I'm working with my clients, I, you know, people, particularly people who are coming off the bat of never having done meditation before and who might really experience a bit of fear about it in terms of, I, I don't know what to do. I'll often just say to them, please just start with a five minute practice a day because at least you're, 
starting a rhythm, if you, if you like. What have you found in your research that's um, you know, a, 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 an optimal time, amount of time to meditate and an optimal time of day to meditate? Uh, it gets back to the point I was making a while ago about, you know, we don't really know what to tell people when they say, what should I do in terms of meditation? Um, I, I'm not aware of any data which has shown that it's better to meditate in the morning or the evening. Um, again, my, my short answer would be whatever works best for the person. Um, if they're not much of a morning person, then I would probably do the meditation in the afternoon or in the evening. Uh, or if they get too tired at night, then maybe better to do it in the morning. Um, I haven't seen any specific data which suggests that you know, one, one is better or worse inherently than the other. Um, and again, it may also have something to do with uh, the person itself. If they have trouble with going to sleep at night, it might be better to do it at night. Um, if they have more stress during the day, it might be better to start the day off with that. Uh, and in terms of the amounts, again, the same kind of thing. You know, it, it's, uh, we don't have, uh, it, it's not like the pharmacology, uh, the well-developed pharmacology that we have for drugs where we know what a half-life is and how much and so forth. Um, uh, to some degree, more meditation and longer meditation results in more and, and more permanent changes in the brain. Um, but as you said, I mean, it's also been shown that very brief practices, even 30 seconds to a minute can help to relax somebody. So, you know, I, I, I really like the idea of saying, look, if you haven't really done it before, then, then doing it for very brief periods of time to start out, ease into it, work into it. Again, going back to the muscle analogy, you know, you don't start out lifting 300 pounds. You start out 10 pounds and 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, and you work yourself up to 300 pounds. So, um, so, you know, each person has to kind of find what works for them. Uh, you know, most practices are done, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, you know, a half hour. So that, that tends to be a little bit of a sweet spot for people. But, um, uh, and one other way of answering your question is that it does depend on what the goals are. If the goals are really just to stress reduction, then 15, 20 minutes may be totally fine. Um, if you're really striving for enlightenment and some kind of spiritual, you know, peace to all of this, then, um, you might want to do a retreat, uh, you know, and do something where you're doing it for hours a day. Um, you may need to do something that is more intense. That's right. So again, it's that horses for courses. And I think, yes, thank you for validating what I said, which is really, I think it's just a starting point to get this rhythm going in your life. Right. Um, in your book, you mentioned, you do get very practical and you mentioned eight ways to exercise the brain um, to enhance physical, mental and spiritual health. And I think everyone wants to be doing more of that. There are eight ways. I was fascinated by number five, and I will, then I will end on number one. But number five, I loved this when I read it. And number five was to yawn. And it's because it's activating a particular part, a little tiny part of our brain. I just wonder if you could share with us a little bit about this. I was just fascinated and, and I hadn't heard it before. So I'd love you to, to share about that. Right. Well, you know, uh, yawning always sort of has a negative uh, connotation because when does one do it? We do it when we're tired uh, or bored. And uh, but what what the brain is really doing is saying, I've got to wake up. Um, so yawning actually is a way of waking the brain up and getting the brain ready to to concentrate or perform or whatever. Uh, and uh, so it, it is a natural way that the brain actually helps to helps itself to, to wake up, to work better. Uh, it, it appears, as you mentioned, to activate certain parts of the brain that become more active so that we can become more awake and, and more effective in whatever it is that we're going to do. But it also helps us to kind of calm ourselves down by taking those deep breaths. And so uh, there's been some very uh, prominent athletes, uh, Olympic athletes, who have actually done this kind of yawning practice before 
they, you know, they're ready to do their run or their, their event. And, uh, and the research really uh, has helped to show that, um, that doing this kind of, it, it, people can kind of fake it initially, you know, but then the great thing about yawning is that it becomes kind of an automatic thing. And, and we sometimes recommend try a couple of, you know, just kind of fake it a few times, you know, and, and do that a couple of times. And then you'll start to do it a little bit more naturally. And if you do it, you know, five or six times in a period of a minute or two, that will just help to relax your, your brain and body. Uh, while also waking it up. And uh, it's a very powerful way of helping the, the brain to work well. Oh, I love it. And I have to say to you, since I read about it, I've been doing it and I've been practicing it. It's been working really well. The other thing that I noticed, and, and I'm a dog owner with my dog, Lucy, and I know you're a dog owner as well. As I read that, I, it actually made sense to me in terms of something that Lucy does, because she yawns at the beginning when, she, when she's moving from one activity to another. Yeah. So she, she very regularly yawns. And so that made sense to me from a neurological perspective, why she would be doing that. Because it used to concern me, is, is there something not right? But she's doing it because it's enlivening her for the next, for the next, for the next activity. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So that then coming full circle, then my last question is around um, a couple more around faith. Faith is the number one way to exercise your brain and enhance this mental, physical and spiritual health. So, you know, you may feel you've answered this, but if you could just summarize for us, why is faith number one? Why, why is this the best thing that we could do to exercise our brain? Well, uh, the, you know, the, again, the, the research really helps us to see this, um, that um, having faith and being, which really means, you know, being optimistic, um, you know, bringing that compassion, bringing that positive uh, nature to, the, to yourself, to the world around you, that seems to be able to make the brain operate as effectively as possible. Um, uh, we, again, a lot of research has shown that just having an optimistic outlook on life, uh, prolongs life, reduces mortality, reduces heart disease, um, and, and makes people and their brains work so much better. So, uh, these kinds of, uh, faith-based and, uh, optimistic kinds of approaches and spirituality, uh, there's just so much data that continues to show how important that is for, for all of us. Uh, and whether it's a specific religious tradition is not as relevant as just what gives you meaning and, and uh, support in life and how it helps you to, to be a, an effective person and, uh, and, and to go through life in a way that is positive and hopefully, you know, changes the world for something better and changes you for something better. That's fantastic. Look, I agree with you. And, and as you say, it's this faith, this focus on love and optimism and, and compassion rather than any particular tradition. It's, but it's this, it's a way we're, what we what we see is what we get, you know, quantum physics shows yeah. that the observer affects the observed. So it's around this, bringing this, uh, this, if we're focusing on the good stuff, we're going to get more of the good stuff. So I'd like to say thank you so much today for your time, um, Andrew. It's just been such a fascinating well, Thank you. And um, thank you also, though, for this work you're doing in this area. I think that you are really on the cutting edge. You, you've got such a depth of knowledge and, and, and experience and capability but you're really helping bring something very valuable to much more to the mainstream through your scientific approach. So I just want to really thank you and honor you for the work that you're doing. And, um, and thank you for spending the time that you've spent with us today. It's been such a, an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. A lot of fun. Absolutely. We'll look, to, look forward to talking to you soon. Uh, we're still doing more research. So we got more things to talk about in the future. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to have you back anytime. It would be really fantastic. So thank Sounds you. Sounds good.
Thank you for joining me on this episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate and review Your Freedom Unlimited on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, you can reach me directly at jenramsey.com. Thanks for listening. 